It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes, Jonah Goldberg, and our special guest this week, Chris Steyerwalt. We are going to talk about the Biden administration, former President Trump going to Iowa, the latest in Afghanistan, and our reflections on September 11th, 20 years later. Let's dive right in. Jonah, how's the Biden administration doing? Uh, not great, Bob. Uh, uh, you know, look, I mean, lots of presidents have bad summers. Lots of presidents in their first year, or their first term have bad summers. Summers are bad in Washington. It's this is a fact. You can look it up. It's in the Bible. But um, it does seem to me that this has been particularly bad. And uh, his poll numbers, his approval is is down i thought his, his disapprove is somewhere around 50 percent at this point he's um particularly suffering um among moderates and independents um and so i, I guess the question i have for the group rather than me s- state the facts that we all already know is is this merely summer doldrums and he'll recover or are the best days behind him and what does that mean going into 2022, never mind the vaunted 2024? And since Brother Starwalt is, is with us, I will, uh, uh, I'll give him first shot. So when you talk about approval, disapproval numbers, uh, the delta is what counts. Uh, I use the uh, 538 average just because it's, a, it's the easiest thing to do. And uh, as of this recording, the president has a uh, 51 uh, 0.5% approval, 43% disapprove. Uh, and the numbers, I'm sorry, other way around, I 49, for other, other way around 49.1% disapproval, 45% approve. So that puts him four points underwater. Uh, the, the bad news for Biden is that it is the, a sustained slide. It isn't, it hasn't been a spike. It's been really since there's, it's really since June, May or June. Um, most of it is attached to coronavirus. Most of it is attached to frustrate people uh, in every poll that you look uh, for what's the cause. The, the leading the charge is coronavirus and frustration, understandable frustrations from Americans who in the, at the beginning of the summer, the end of the spring, thought we were about to begin the party time excellent uh, of the uh, end of the pandemic. And yet we find that we're still kind of edging around it. Um, so that's the bad news. The good news for Biden is that most of his disapproval, the, the change are with people who do not disapprove him, right? The change is from people who no longer approve him, but they're soft. Now they're, 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 they've backed away, but it's not like they're, they're primed to go vote for Donald Trump in 2024 or something. So they're, they're winnable backable. 
Uh, and he, if, if the economy gets better, if we get through this uh, stuff, then sure. But of course, what Biden has to worry about is if he drags a, let's say he drags a 45, 43% approval rating into midterms, uh, and the Democrats get the kind of result that you expect when your incumbent has a 43% job approval rating, which is a whipping. Uh, so let's say they do, you know, they lose 25 seats in the House, uh, a couple seats in the Senate. This will reinforce, uh, this will reinforce the negative narrative and make Biden a lame duck. So that's it. He's, he's got a, he's got a year to turn it around. So Sarah, isn't part of the problem that, um, unlike Donald Trump, unlike Barack Obama, even unlike George W. Bush, no one's really that into Joe Biden, right? I mean, uh, the, the intensity, intensity seems to matter in a polarized America where the, where, where people are, seem to think the only way to win is with base elections um, and base fundraising and all that kind of stuff and the voters who will crawl over glass for you. Um, no one's crawling all over glass for Joe Biden. They didn't do it in 2020. They crawled over glass to vote against Donald Trump. And isn't that lack of intensity, particularly going into 2022, um, bad news for Dems? I mean, we, now, we just saw this report uh, this morning that... Um, that Yunkin in Virginia is up to, and at least some credible people are saying this has something to do with the drop in the, the Biden stuff. Where do you come down on this? Yeah. So I obviously am a big believer in not, not for it. I simply believe in it, uh, in the turnout election model being our current politics entirely, that it is all about getting your team to come vote rather than persuading people in the middle that persuasion politics has basically been a thesis that has been disproven. Um, that being said, Joe Biden is an interesting experiment after Trump because I think everything you said is exactly right. Um, except you still have the negative polarization. So yes, Trump's not on the ballot, but Democrats still hate Republicans. Republicans hate Democrats. Uh, Joe Biden isn't inflaming anyone, but maybe they're just inflaming each other enough. So that'll be interesting to see. And we're going to test this with the recall on Tuesday. So this time next week, the first topic we're going to talk about, I'm sure, is the recall election in California and what we learned. You know, I hate predicting these things. It's not what this podcast is about. And I don't think we have any special powers of prediction, the four of us. But I think... It looks like Gavin Newsom is likely to win that. It will be interesting to see some of the breakdown of the voters, where they are, where he did well, where he did poorly, for all of the reasons you just said, Jonah. So fine, they don't care too much about Joe Biden. Gavin Newsom is sort of like Joe Biden. No one is that fired up about Gavin Newsom. Um, and he has let a lot of them down. He's hard to defend when he goes to the French laundry. But do they really want a Republican in charge of their state? Are they willing to show up to vote? That's the question. Same in Virginia. Uh, although Virginia is interesting to me because Terry McAuliffe is basically an incumbent. High, high name ID in Virginia was a well-liked governor. He wasn't, you know, angering anyone. He wasn't a lightning rod particularly. And Glenn Youngkin is still relatively unknown in the state. Uh, 
you know, there's one poll showing Yunkin up. There's plenty of polls showing. What is this poll? You guys have both now mentioned. I want to see the poll. What is this poll that has Glenn Yunkin leading in Virginia? I've seen polls that have it close, but I haven't said Trafalgar had it at two. This is a this is a leaked private poll from the campaign or something there like we that. Go. Oh, okay. I got. It. I, 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 I wasn't, got you. I wasn't. I wasn't. I got a poll it's right here. Party. I got a poll right here. That says I'm winning this race. That's what it tells you. <laughs> yeah. So what I was gonna say about that is, you know, Republicans' best hope in Virginia, if they're you know being really honest with you privately, is that they pull up within two of Terry McAuliffe, and that that in and of itself would be a shot over the bow at Democrats in a state like Virginia, in those suburbs in Northern Virginia. Uh, Will we see that or will Glenn Youngkin lose by seven and Gavin Newsom, you know, isn't just not recalled, but has a resounding uh, mandate heading into the rest of his term? I think those are actually reasonably likely outcomes, in which case Biden's approval number didn't make a damn bit of difference. So, so Steve, uh, feel free to react to all of the things that you think are wrong. Opinions. Oh, I but, will. Oh, I but, will. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, part of, so Biden's appeal was competence, compassion, and, um, normalcy. And it seems to me that you, he's lost ground on all of those. Um, even compassion, which I think he can gain back because people's memories are short, but, uh, some of his reactions to the Afghan situation were not exactly compassionate. And uh, you only get to make one first impression. Um, is it is it a tougher slog ahead for him than these, you know, these, these pie-eyed optimists are, are making it seem? Yeah, I, I think it is. Um, first, let me just take strong exception to Sarah's claim that we don't have the powers of prediction here on this podcast. Uh, I predict that we will talk about Trump next. We're probably going to cover <laughs> Afghanistan and 9 11. A seer. Yeah, I, I, I think you're, you're right. I mean, you know, his Biden's basic promise was I am going to relieve the country from the chaos of Donald Trump. And if you look at what he was gifted coming into office, it was a vastly improving situation with coronavirus, a vastly improving economy, and a world that seemed to be with obvious you know, challenges uh, still in existence, um, not in the kind of chaos that uh, you know, the, the kind of daily ravings from Donald Trump suggest. Suggested. Uh, in all three of those, we've seen him slip. We've we've seen him have problems, and this this latest uh, with Afghanistan, I think, will will linger for Biden. Not because people are so passionate about Biden, but because it really uh, takes a chunk out of his claims to be competent. Um, By by virtually every measure, what we've seen, even if you agree with the withdrawal, uh, has been totally incompetent. I I think that the point about intensity is right. I'm not where Sarah is on this sort of all or nothing base election versus persuading uh, independence. But clearly, especially in midterms, uh, intensity matters and matters above all else. There's a really uh, good little short item from our uh, 
dispatch friend, uh, Amy Walters over at uh, the Cook Political Report, talking about Biden's slippage uh, in intensity and uh, the, the increase in the number of people who are intensely opposed to Joe Biden. I think if you look at that, that is gives Team Biden a reason to worry. And one quick final point, Jonah, to go back to your question about um, what's in front of him. He has to manage a very, very difficult chasm between the moderates, the few but powerful moderates remaining in the Democratic Party, and the many but powerful and angry progressives in the Democratic Party. That is coming to a head this month, right? He is going to try to pass this $3.5 trillion social spending bill that is in effect a wish list for the progressives in the Democratic Party, uh, the kinds of things that they've been touting for years that they're celebrating now. Um, The New York Times even called it a total transformation of the social safety net. Uh, this is a big deal. It's what progressives have always wanted. And yet you have reports that Joe Manchin, um, senator from West Virginia and staunch opponent of spending $3.5 trillion on the social safety net, doesn't want to let the, the final uh, bill cost more than $1.5 trillion, which the progressives take great umbrage at. That's going to be a problem. He needs to maintain the enthusiasm or at least the the willingness of progressives to be in his corner. And if that fails or if, if progressives think it's too small or he didn't fight on their behalf, I think you see that strong approval and the intensity continue to decrease. All right. And with that, let's go on to Chris Steyerwalt. Donald Trump's heading to Iowa. Well, the person who is most keenly interested, I saw there was a uh, some sort of uh, mumbo jumbo, phony baloney poll uh, that had Trump and Biden deadlocked in a head to head, and it's uh, phony baloney because it's too early uh, to say. Uh, though there is no doubt that Donald Trump is. It's interesting. Republicans are both over Trump uh, and. And under him at the same time, they're both uh, Republicans seem to have normalized Donald Trump post-presidency, post-January 6th. uh, But he also doesn't seem to have uh, the kind of stroke that uh, many people said that he would. Uh, We heard Matt Gaetz, the uh, (laughs) the the Cicero of the Florabama coast, tell us that. The <clears throat> tell us that uh, Trump is ready to fight. He's going to run. Uh, he's going to get in the race, and he's going to. He needs a candidacy in order to have a platform uh, from which to pummel Biden. And by the way, candidacy or the exploration of a candidacy would be a further argument for Trump in trying to get his Twitter account back. Right? That if you are a candidate for office, then how can you prevent this candidate from office uh, from uh, being able to share? his exciting ideas with the people. Uh, So next month, uh, the president is going back to, in a lot of ways, where it all started. It wasn't really the escalator ride in New York that brought Donald Trump into uh, contention for the Republican nomination. It was the Iowa State Fair where he took people 
up on helicopter rides, on whirlybird rides at the Iowa State Fair that we said, oh, well, I guess this may be a thing. So Trump is heading back to Iowa for a a campaign kind of event. uh, And his aides say uh, that this is a, that the, we're going to lock in the evangelical support early. We're going to lock in Iowa early. We're not going to make the same mistake as we did let Ted Cruz uh, or some other evangelical borough their way in there. And we're going to set up the block uh, at Iowa. Uh, So my question for you, Sarah, is, is this for real? Is this this something you got to do? You're raising money. You kind of have a campaign apparatus. You got to have events. Uh, is this deliberate strategy? What is this? When someone tells you who they are, believe them. (laughs) Everyone is telling us that Donald Trump is running for president. Donald Trump is telling us that he's running for president. Uh, Jason Miller, Trump campaign advisor, quote, between 99 and 100 percent. I think he is definitely running in 2024. Was this was this while he was detained in Brazil while he was down (laughs) organizing? I kid you not. CPAC Brasilia, when he was doing CPAC Brasilia or somewhere else? I believe it was right before he was detained uh, for CPAC Brasilia. Um, Yeah, uh, he certainly thinks he's running. Could events intercede and stop him from running? I guess. I don't know what those would be. Um, Force majeure, you know? But uh, yes, he is running. And for me then, it's the cascading effect. You know, in the sweep, for instance, Chris, uh, we covered, I forget how many now, a million uh, Republicans who want to run for president in 2024. How many of those will be left standing if Trump throws his hat in the ring? And the answer is like, uh, maybe just Chris Christie, maybe Chris Christie and like three other people, but like Christy Nome, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis. Uh, They're definitely not going to run against him. Ted Cruz, Tom Cotton, probably not, but maybe. Um, So as long as Trump is freezing the field, it has all of these downstream effects that uh, if he then, for whatever reason, doesn't run, there'll be a whole bunch of Republicans scrambling because they haven't really been running. Uh, And if he does run, there's a whole bunch of just frozen campaigns waiting for 2028. All right, Steve, how does so coverage of this is challenging because on the one hand, uh, he's a former president. He's the most famous person in the world. Uh, He is uh, Donald Trump. On the other hand, it's he's a 2024 candidate and it's a long way from 20 because it's too early to say anything sensible about 2024. Now, even if you're talking about Donald Trump, the mistake that the press made with Donald Trump in 2016 was that no matter what, it was good TV, so keep it on. How will, and I guess I should phrase it this way, in which ways will the press cover Trump wrong? Which (laughs) which are the most, which are the dominant ways in which uh, the political press will uh, mishandle coverage of Donald Trump? Yeah, I mean, we will see the exact same thing. Look, if if, if your model is monetizing eyeballs, whether in print or or, uh, video, you put on a lot of Donald Trump because Donald Trump is good for business. Uh, Trump said this, and he was right. You know, we have seen in in the post-Trump era a dramatic drop-off, uh, particularly for for highly partisan 
media outlets and media outlets that generate a good chunk of their income based simply on volume, a huge drop off in the number of people consuming that news. And I put news in, in that sense in, in quotes in many ways. We will see the exact same thing. I mean, it will be, I think, wall to wall coverage. He will, he will uh, probably generate pretty significant ratings. I don't think maybe the same that he used to, but I think we'll see the media repeat many of the same mistakes they, they made. Uh, let me take some exception to what Sarah said for real this time. I, my guess, and now this is where I am entering the, the perilous prediction zone. I don't think all of those people will abandon their runs and presidential ambitions if Donald Trump gets back in. I think we're likely to see many more of the potential 2024 candidates actually run, um, particularly those who think that they can run as something of a bridge between a Trumpist Republican Party of the last six years and um, kind of, a, a you know, the, the old kind of old school conservatism. I think we will see. Do you think Ron like, DeSantis runs against Donald Trump? I think Ron DeSantis could run against Don, Donald Trump. I think Tom Cotton could run against Don, Donald Trump. And, and maybe most surprising of all, I would not be surprised to see Mike Pompeo run against Donald Oof. Trump. That guy has had, talk about not having a great summer. There is a guy who has not had a great summer. <laughs> well, when you embrace the Taliban as America's right. counterterrorism partner, it's hard to, hard to be more wrong than that. The preferred phrase is our partners in peace. Our That's partners in peace, which, who, which presidential candidate has not let 5,000 Taliban fighters out of prison? Come on. It's just, it's a cost of doing business. So it's just um, a cost of doing business. I want to ask you about Jonah. Okay. Wait, go no, ahead. I have an actual question. I thought of oh a question gosh. for you because I want to do it McLaughlin, McLaughlin group style. True or false? Donald Trump's reemergence on the political scene is good news for Joe Biden. True. Uh, reminding people, particularly the people that Biden is losing right now, who voted against Trump rather than for Biden, reminding them of why they didn't like Trump is good for Biden, I think. Also, I think Trump is a good foil um, for, for Biden. I do want to make two quick points. One, at the beginning, I, I kind of tuned out for a little bit because at the beginning you said something about how nothing was beneath Donald Trump, and it <laughs> made me realize that the underminer from The Incredibles really nice. kind of nailed Donald Trump's aesthetic. He says, behold, the underminer. I'm always beneath you, but nothing is beneath me. <laughs> I hereby declare war on peace and happiness. So all will tremble before me. Okay. So anyway, um, quite so. Uh, uh, secondly, I think you guys are all wrong about how it's clear that he's going to run for the simple I didn't reason. Say that. Okay. I think Sarah's all wrong because uh, first of all, I do not put enormous stake in what Jason Miller has to say about anything. Um, uh, but uh, beyond that, the main reason why I, I, I think it's perfectly legitimate to bet that he's going to run, given what we know in sort of in the Aesopian faith sense of what Donald Trump is like. But the, the key thing with Donald Trump is I don't think he knows. Donald Trump, you know, basically has Schrodinger's ego. Right. It's it's like the cat is both dead and alive until you open the box. He always he has said a thousand times. I like to keep all my options open. You know, he wouldn't commit about whether or not he would contest the election. 
um, two years in advance. He wouldn't commit whether he would contest the election in 2016. He says, I got to wait and see what happens. Right. You know, and um, and my guess is he thinks he can parachute in at the last second. Clear the field of almost everybody. uh, Make poor, poor Ron DeSantis question a lot of his decisions over the last 10 years um, if DeSantis decides to run against him um, or not. And I just think it's, it's, it's for him. He, he likes to have people thinking he's going to run or thinking that he could run because it has all of the benefits of saying he's going to run without any of the drawbacks of actually saying he is running. But see, that's a question for me for all the reasons that he is, thinks he's benefiting for saying he's going to run. Aren't those also benefits of him actually running? Like where, I don't see any real distinction. Why doesn't he have all of those benefits of being a candidate again? What's the downside for him? I don't know. Cause then, he, I mean, can he, can he still rake in money from all of these weird things he's got going on? Does he want to draw that kind of attention? He may have lawyers telling him, Hey, you know, like, you know, some of these things going on with the New York AG, like we could maybe get you out of some of this, but if you run for president again, everyone's going to go back to, you know, uh, you know, total panic mode. And that may not be good for you right now. I mean, I, I don't know. I just think he's like, I think he likes to appear like he's running um, because it leaves open the option of actually running while also giving him a, the flexibility of playing a lot of golf, you know, and not not running. And you should we should also point out that Jason Miller at all, <clears throat> what Trump's uh, toe dipping does is allow them to build build high uh, the grift packing to raise all this money and build this organization. And I am also sure that it has occurred to someone that if Donald Trump doesn't win, that this whole, then they're bragging about the, the organization they're going to build in Iowa. Look, <clears throat> the campaign that uh, won with no money uh, and no organization is now saying it's going to win in 2024 because of its massive money advantage and huge organization. I imagine that they believe that if Donald Trump doesn't run or is indisposed by the uh, uh, New York authorities, uh, that somebody else could walk in uh, onto what they're calling a turnkey <clears throat> presidential campaign. Uh, and who would that key turner be? Might it be DeSantis? Might it be wh- whomever Jason Miller at all think is the most loyal factotum uh, of Trump and Trumpism? All right, Steve, you're next. Uh, is everything going great in Afghanistan now? So we've spoken about Afghanistan consistently now every week for what the past six plus weeks. And one of the things that I think we, we we've had some some minor disagreements among our, our group and we've had some pretty significant disagreements in our group. But I think one of the things that we had in common was our um, uh, bewilderment at the Biden administration's insistence that the Taliban might be good guys in this whole matter. And um, they've held open the possibility uh, by not condemning the Taliban, uh, that the Taliban could be our partners in peace. They have at times offered forward-leaning statements, sort of affirmations that they expect the Taliban might actually help the United States uh, work constructively with us, become a an important contributor to the international community. Um, and over the past couple of days, we have seen the Taliban roll out 
its choices for leading government positions. And not surprisingly, the putative partners for peace and partners in our counterterrorism efforts in Afghanistan have installed uh, as leaders of Afghanistan several terrorists, including Siraj Haqqani, a deputy leader of the Taliban who has a $10 million bounty on his head by the U.S. government. Question to you, Sarah. Does this finally signal to the Biden administration that their hopes for some kind of constructive partnership with the Taliban, which has changed not a whit since the 9-11 attacks 20 years ago, is over? So let's start with something more basic. There was something deeply cynical about how the Biden administration has approached the last six weeks. Uh, And it's been kind of universally recognized, but not talked about a whole lot, which is uh, Joe Biden, I think, agree or disagree with what the outcome is. Joe Biden believed that it was important for him to get out of Afghanistan. He wanted to do that. And everyone around him said it was a bad idea or a good idea, but the Biden White House seemed to have universally agreed that it would be fine no matter how bad the outcome was because Americans have short attention spans, the news cycle would move on, and that is deeply cynical, that it, that it, never, that it doesn't matter, and none of it mattered. Their cynicism was always going to be true, and I think this week is what really is highlighting the truth of it. Uh, the media was too happy to pivot to the Texas abortion law, for instance, after covering Afghanistan for six weeks and having some Afghanistan exhaustion. Uh, You know, we'll talk about September 11th next, but I'm sure there was a sense in the media at the time, some of you guys would know this, um, of like, oh, wow, we have just covered this and covered this and covered this for months and months and months. Um, Wouldn't it be nice, you know, to cover the president saying strategery again or something. Um, And that is what's happened. They've held press conferences on wildfires. They have told the Department of Justice to protect reproductive rights in the country. They're back to focusing on infrastructure and fighting with Joe Manchin. They are not attempting to pivot, Steve. They have pivoted. And... We will still talk about Afghanistan. It led the morning dispatch on Wednesday morning still. But um, the cynicism of a White House who is then proved right about their cynicism is a dangerous precedent. Will it work, Jonah? Um, let me put it this way. It could work. It, it really just depends on what the actual events in Afghanistan and coming out of Afghanistan are. Um, you know, the, the way you listen, when I listen to Jen Psaki talk about this stuff, it is amazing to me how much of her pushback boils down to words. You know, don't call them stranded. You know, three days later, we're you know, patting ourselves on the back for doing some sort of like, you know, Sherpa, Gunga Din, Telsing Norgay, you know, overland route to get Americans out. 
um, because it's so dangerous and it's so heroic of us to do this. But don't say they were stranded, That, if, even though that's what was required to get them out. Similarly, don't call them hostages just because the Taliban won't let them leave until there are some unstated concessions from us. Um, and so, so much of the stuff is about wordplay and trying to shape the media messaging. And I think in general, big chunks of the, of the mainstream media are open to being manipulated along these lines. I think they're, 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 they're proud of the fact that they, they covered it pretty honestly and fair, but you know, enough is enough. And, um, and so the question then simply becomes, you know, do we see mass beheadings in Afghanistan? Does Al Qaeda start launching new attacks? Um, all of these things are, 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 are entirely possible. And while I've said a bunch of times on here, I thought the mainstream media was pretty fair and honest towards, towards, uh, uh, this debacle. I think we can also concede that these stories would not end if this had been Donald Trump. Like the the relentlessness of the coverage of of us betraying our allies and look at the bloodshed and all of these kinds of things would be a not would be a drumbeat and um and so I did look at I I I I agree with Sarah it's it's a depressing thing that the that cynicism is the smart play here um but it's at the end of the day it's it's out of their hands to a certain extent they have the wind at their backs because there are a lot of institutional forces in the media that would much rather talk about how the real Taliban is in Texas um, than talk about, you know, the actual Taliban in Afghanistan. And so that will give them um, a leg up. But some really, really horrible things with video could be coming out of Afghanistan over the next six weeks, six months, year. And um, the fact that Joe Biden, I mean, I hate to say this, the fact that Joe Biden was booed by a crowd at um, when he was visiting New Jersey about Afghanistan is actually in some ways a healthy sign <laughs> that a lot of Americans aren't going to let go of this this story. But I guess um, it's just wait and see. But will it will it really matter if we're not attacked again in the short term? Will will news coverage of the Taliban beating uh, Afghan women? Uh, photographs of battered and bruised journalists coming out of Afghanistan, statements about the reimposition of Sharia law. Is that enough to make the American people care or will it take another attack? Absolutely not. We have Uyghurs in concentration camps in China and we're playing basketball games over there because they buy Jordans too. Uh, you have, you know, insane atrocities happening in several countries in Africa all at once. Um, and I mean, human rights abuses in Syria. I, I don't even know what all countries to name at this point. Americans have been told, are used to being told that America is the best place to live on earth and look at all these horrible things going on. So pointing out horrible things going on in other countries, um, we have had to become numb to that because how could you possibly live in a world where so many true atrocities are happening to women and children in so many places in the world? So no, that won't affect anything unless there's a terrorist attack at home. And like I said before, 
I do think this has an effect on how people view Joe Biden, but that is a domestic effect that was influenced by a foreign policy outcome. Not that the foreign policy or anything that happens in Afghanistan from this point forward will have much of an effect. We have what those, uh, those students from California, don't get me started on why there are students from California in Afghanistan uh, on a field trip or something, but they're still over there last time I checked. But this is different. I think this is different um, because this was our project for 20 years, right? I mean, I think your point, it's, it's, a, it's a valid point on the Uyghurs in China and the collective global shrug. But we sought to make this place better and we sought to make it different. And it's pretty evident that we failed. Uh, Jonah, do you, do you think we lost the 9-11 wars? The 9-11 wars meaning Iraq and Afghanistan or the, the argument? Given where we that? are right now. Given where we are right now. Iraq and Afghanistan and all of what went into fighting what was once called the war on terror. Um, no, I, mean, I don't think it was, let me put it this way. I don't think it was all a waste. I think it is a perfectly defensible position now to say that we shouldn't have gone into Iraq. I, I think that, that the war was a mistake. Um, certainly given the way it was, it was, it was messaged and sold, um, to the American people, it set us up for a lot of cynicism and, um, and given the lack of, I mean, we don't need to relitigate the Iraq war. Um, I think at the end of the day, um, the fact that we protected the homeland, the fact that we did not have another major terrorist attack here is an important, serious policy victory. The fact that we signaled to the world that we were willing to project power very far away to defend ourselves and protect our interests and protect our principles was very valuable. Um, the problem is, is that now it's, it's a lot of it is being, has been frittered away. Um, I agree with you that there's a moral distinction between what goes on in, with the Uyghurs and what goes on in Afghanistan. And since we can, we have a larger share of blame for it, but I think Sarah's right that unless there are actual tangible impacts on America, um, the, the turning a blind eye will, 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 will win the day. Um, and I hate scoring this on political things, but I think for a lot of people, they will look at whatever atrocities come out of Afghanistan. And so long as they are not mind blowing, they will either support or blame the various politicians they already dislike for it. It was Bush's fault or, you know, that, or if they're partisan Democrats, it's Biden's fault. If they're partisan Republicans, um, and, uh, I, I think scoring it on the narrow politics of Joe Biden, I think it hurts Joe Biden. There's, I mean, there's no way this helps Joe Biden. He had a theory that this would help him. I think that is not true. The only question now is how much it hurts him. And it's entirely possible. It doesn't hurt him a lot. And I, I find that depressing, but I think that's entirely possible that it's true. So two quick things, Steve. Uh, one because of America's enormous resources, if we have the power to stop something, isn't it therefore kind of the same as it's our fault if we don't? And so uh, if we have the power to stop genocide um, in a civil war in an African country, 
and then we choose not to, is that that different? Uh, to your point about like, well, this one, we own this one. I think Americans do feel, should feel something like we could choose to stop any of these things. We don't for a variety of good reasons, by the way. Um, but we have some moral responsibility to recognize the power that it is to be an American. Second, you know, the, uh, in the wake of September 11th, there were conversations for years about like, well, these countries can never be democracies. They don't have democratic institutions. They don't have the foundational civil structure to be democracies. I wonder, Steve, what you think about what has happened and whether that argument is actually stronger or just that the people making it will think that it's become stronger in the wake of Afghanistan and Iraq, for that matter? Yeah, I mean, I guess I think that to a certain extent, the, the critics have mischaracterized the, the original aspirations of our continuing presence in some of these countries. You know, you, you often hear critics say, well, you know, the United States went in and, and failed to establish Jeffersonian democracies. And, I don't think establishing Jeffersonian democracies was ever the real objective. Now, but certainly in fairness, you can point to George W. Best, Bush's... Yeah, we sent over constitutional scholars to help them write a constitution. We at least oh, tried. Yeah. We wanted to. But the, it seems to me you can try, I think to a certain extent we had an obligation to try to help leaders in both Afghanistan and Iraq set up a, a government that would be more representative, be less authoritarian than what each individual country had had before without committing to creating a Jeffersonian democracy. Um, I, I think it, there, there's a straw man argument at play there. And I think you could have had um, success in a way um, that fell somewhere in between, right? So you didn't have Saddam Hussein ruling Iraq. You didn't have the Taliban ruling Afghanistan. And neither did you have in either place this Jeffersonian democracy that's, that's the, the, the imagination of this, this, a straw man of the imagination of the critics. But you could have had something better. I mean, there, you know, there was an interesting series of articles written at the end of the Bush administration by people who had been at times ferocious critics of George W. Bush on what Iraq looked like, on what Barack Obama was getting in Iraq. And even De Dexter Filkins, terrific reporter, was at the New York Times, writes for The New Yorker, said, look, Despite all of our concerns and, and all of our criticism and, and all of the problems, what you have in Iraq at this point, this is, I think, February of 2009, is a reasonably stable government, a reasonably stable society with a reasonably strong civil society and the possibility that this could be a better situation than it was under Saddam Hussein. And, you know, there were mistakes made before we got to that point in Iraq. There were mistakes made certainly after we got to that point in Iraq. But I guess I don't think that we had to create this kind of utopian um, flourishing democracy in order to have succeeded in a way that we clearly did not succeed, I would say, particularly in Afghanistan. If you look at what's happening in Afghanistan right now, it's literally the case that some of the very same people that we kicked out are taking power, again, founders of Al-Qaeda, uh, leaders of the Taliban, people, you know, that, that we had f uh, five 
senior Taliban commanders imprisoned at Guantanamo Bay. Barack Obama exchanged them effectively for Bo Bergdahl. They've been leading negotiations. Um, They're bad, bad, bad people. They were determined high-risk detainees when we had them at Guantanamo. And they're now helping to run the Taliban. I just uh, helping to run Afghanistan as leaders of the Taliban. I just don't see how you can look at, at Afghanistan in particular and conclude anything other than we lost, we lost badly, and Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda won. All right. Uh, The last topic, this Saturday is the 20th anniversary of September 11th. I just wanted us to talk about it a little bit. Um, I was at home waiting for my second year of college to start. We were on the quarter system and uh, I heard my mother's voice and she said, Sarah, get up. Uh, And I just assumed my grandmother had died because it was like that tone in her voice, you know, like grandma's definitely dead. Um, And it turned out my dad had called her and said that they needed to wake me up. We were in central time. So uh, it was earlier. Uh, And I just sat in front of the TV for the next 48 hours. I didn't sleep. I just watched everything as an 18 year old. And it, there's just no question. Like I knew it in the moment that it was happening, that this would affect my worldview for the rest of my life and my generations. Like what a, um, what a pivotal time for that to happen when you're 18 and it's your first time really stepping outside the bubble of your parents' world. And then the world changed. And um, a lot of my friends joined the military, deployed. That all happened in the months to come. So I'm, I don't know. I'm just curious how the experience was at the time for y'all. Did you, at the moment, where do you think we'd be in 20 years, Steve? Yeah, I was, um, I was actually uh, on Capitol Hill the morning of 9-11 getting ready to go cover a hearing at the Capitol uh, featuring Laura Bush on education and was watching TV when the planes hit and watched this, the second plane hit. And so, of course, you knew. I mean, it was sort of this weird moment where you had still lots of I think news people in a, in a very difficult position trying to avoid what I think was a sort of obvious conclusion that this was an attack, um, you know, talking at some length about, you know, how the air traffic controller system might be screwed up or how unusual it was to have two accidents or something like that. Um, I spent the day in Washington, D.C. trying to do reporting, um, trying to track down my brother who was then working uh, as an intern at the World Bank. And there was some concern at the time that the World Bank could be a target because the World Trade Center had been a target and it was unclear whether they were targeting global finance or uh, or the United States specifically. Um, found him, he didn't call for like eight hours, found him gave him a huge hug. And then I think I punched him really, really hard <laughs> for not having gotten in touch with me that day. And then the next morning I was on a, a train up to New York City and I was attempting to do a, a profile of Hillary Clinton um, and managed to sort of talk my way right down to the hole uh, at Ground Zero, which was sort of extraordinary. I mean, everything was you know, still as it had been 24 hours, 36 hours earlier and just, you know, hard to process, I would say. Um, I never was able to write the, the 
profile of Hillary Clinton. And it was, you know, I was working at the Weekly Standard at the time. In that moment, we certainly weren't thinking of anything political. We wanted to just do a, a, a look at what uh, somebody does, a political leader does in a, in a moment like that. And that was her state. So uh, was trying to get access to, to her and what she was doing. That was not happening, obviously. Um, there was one thing I, I saw and wrote up, um, but the, my write-up of it got, got lost. Walking around near Ground Zero that day, you saw dozens, probably hundreds of people uh, walking the streets with flyers, pictures of their loved ones, stopping you uh, desperately uh, again and again and again. Have you seen this person? Have you seen this person? Doing anything they could to, to try to locate somebody who may have been killed. Um, I, I came upon a playground where there was this kind of impromptu protest. And um, it was, you know, th this had just happened. So it was so raw. But there was a group of, of people. It was, it was almost like a, a soapbox in, um, in, in Hyde Park in, in London where people were standing up and giving speeches. And there was uh, a, a group of people who, even in that close-in moment after the attacks, were claiming that the United States had asked for this, that this is what we deserved, that we had been too aggressive in our foreign policy, and, and we sort of had it coming. And I just remember distinctly there was a, a, a guy there. He was wearing a tie-dye. I imagined he was an NYU student, but I didn't talk to him. Um, who, whom I expected to be sympathetic to the arguments coming from the, the people uh, sort of shouting and screaming, uh, kind of anti-American arguments. Uh, this guy was sort of a you know, typical hippie-looking guy. And, and he spoke up and gave sort of one of the most impassioned, extemporaneous speeches I've heard in defense of America. Um, not at all what I would have expected. Uh, I wrote it up. I, I sent it to my boss is back at the Weekly Standard. I'd only been at the magazine for, for three months. I thought it was this incredibly powerful moment. And it turns out, you know, in retrospect, it, it sort of foreshadowed a lot of the kinds of arguments that we would see the country have. And uh, it didn't run in the magazine that week. And they never asked me about it. And, uh, you know, I was relatively new to the magazine. I just thought, gosh, they must really not have liked that. And I thought it was, you know, I don't like much that I write. But I really liked that long item. Uh, so I, I waited like six months and then asked my editors, what happened to that? I, I really felt I was sort of proud of that, that work. And they said, oh, we never got it. <laughs> so I wrote oh, this thing oh, that I, I thought was no. going to be, you know, this capture this, this moment. And, uh, and they never even saw it. They went back and checked their emails and just never, never arrived. And to this day, Steve believes that's true. Yeah, well, yeah, 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 probably right. And, and I still, still do you know, the best pieces of work you ever do. Yeah, the best pieces of work you ever do are the ones that nobody can can push back on. How's that? How's your first dog doing at the farm? Where you exactly. get to run all that? <laughs> exactly. Chris, twenty years later, what did what have you learned? Well, uh, I was a newspaper reporter in West Virginia when it happened, and I learned that uh, the buildings, the the tall the the tall buildings in West Virginia were not. Uh, under threat of attack, though we 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 legged that one out that day to make sure that that was true. Um, I think if you would even acknowledging the uh, 
heartbreaks of Iraq and Afghanistan, even acknowledging all of that stuff. I think if you had told Americans 20 years ago that there would not be another successful large-scale terrorist attack uh, inflicted on the United States uh, in 20 years, uh, that people would say that that was pretty impressive. Um, I think if you were to tell people that uh, the comity and uh, self uh, restraint uh, and the reduction in cynicism and all of that stuff uh, that came after was uh, short-lived, they would believe that too. Um, because what I have observed about 9-11 as a, as a political force and a cultural force is uh, it was a, a pause or a departure from a political mainstream that was hurtling toward uh, division uh, and weirdness and populism and uh, decadence, uh, shout out Ross Douthat, uh, for, uh, for some time after that. If you look at the way the country was in 2000, if you look at how our politics were in 2000, uh, we have uh, Donald Trump uh, saying that Pat Buchanan was going to take over the Reform Party uh, for the Nazis and uh, that he, he wasn't going to be a part of that. I think the, the, the political moment of the 1990s and the me-first, uh, very individualized politics and, and weak parties, uh, strong partisanship uh, was paused for a period of time. Uh, because of 9-11, and there was a greater sense of unity, and there was a desire to have a shared enemy, uh, and we had a shared enemy. Um, but that, you know, within 10 years, that was, and that 10 years, by the way, historically speaking, is not nothing, right? 10 years is a long time. But after about 10 years, I think we were uh, back to where we were before. Uh, and the Perroist moment and all of that other stuff and the, and the dissatisfaction in the electorate uh, was was back and uh, and and so we saw Jonah. So, as the only New Yorker here, um, and uh, who was living in Washington D.C. at the time with a wife who was starting to work in the Bush administration, I was of course in Pendleton, Oregon, on oh. and um, uh, I got back from my honeymoon on September 10th. Uh, my wife went straight to Washington because she had to start working for John Ashcroft as his chief speechwriter for the Department of Justice. Um, and I uh, went to the Pacific Northwest to pick up our dog Cosmo to drive him back cross country because we had left him there during our honeymoon. And um, uh, it was a, for me, it was a very emotional time. I was up very early trying to figure out how to write a column um, before I got on the road. So I saw, I guess one of the, most weird memories I have of that whole day. And it was a weird day was, um, I was watching Fox and friends at one point and they had this guy on who had just a newsweek writer who had just written this apparently boffo book about Bush v. Gore and how they, they almost convinced, I don't remember who it was, but one of the justices to flip his vote on all of that. And it was a big deal. And, uh, and it was, uh, it was f- like front of mind back then, Bush v. Gore still. And, and then I remember, e- was her EJ Hill was the former host? Uh, That's correct. Says, 
E.D. E.D. Hill. Yeah. Says, hold on a second. We're getting early. We're getting reports of a small two passenger plane hitting the side of the World Trade Center. And they cut away and then they cut back and they try to do the interview again. And then they get more reports. And they say to this poor schmuck who had just worked for two years, you know, worked for work like a dog for, on this book. I'm sorry, we're going to have to cut the interview short. I'm sure we'll have you back on soon. And he wasn't back on, as far as I know, he never got another interview on that book. I mean, it just, it was the, the way in which everything that came before 9-11 got swept away. I mean, it was sort of a metaphor about all that. Um, beyond that, I, I, I have a piece of the website today that people can take a look at if they want. I, I'm generally pretty down on America in the looking back in the last 20 years. Uh, it's difficult not to see the crappiness of the current culture war as basically it, it, as poisoning so much of the fight about terrorism and 9-11 and all of that stuff. And um, I don't think it was all a waste. I think Chris is absolutely right that that going 20 years without a major attack on us when we all thought one was definite um, is a significant accomplishment, but I have to say that from the idiotic paranoid nonsense about how the Patriot Act was a war on libraries to, uh, the constant (laughs) invocation of how we were 10 seconds from Sharia law taking over America. Um, I think nine 11 ultimately, despite that initial burst of patriotism and unity unleashed a lot of the worst aspects of the culture war. And 20 years later, it seems to me, at least culturally and politically, we are in far worse shape than we were on 9-10-2001 to deal with this kind of threat. And if we have another 9-11 type event where we are not, we are not psychologically or culturally prepared for it, and I think the COVID response demonstrates that. That was in some ways a 9-11 type event, and we, did, we have not handled it well in this country, and it makes me very sad. With that, we hope that all of you listening find some way to remember September 11th uh, in your own ways and families. I have one friend who takes her uh, sons out to fire stations and bring coffee and donuts to the fire stations in their neighborhood. I think that's a wonderful thing to do. And so I just mention it for those who are looking for some way to engage with your family this weekend. And And because Jonah was such a downer. Jonah was a bit of a downer. (laughs) An accurate downer. An accurate downer. Uh, And so perhaps uh, bringing some some donuts or cookies or hot chocolate or whatever else you might uh, find to some some firemen may be less of a downer than, than Jonah. Thank you for listening, and we will see you again next week. Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. 
We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.